Welcome to The Color Code. My name is Cullen Kelly. I am a colorist. I am an image scientist. I am an educator. And as of starting this podcast, I am a professional extractor of colorist secrets. And there is no one whose secrets I want to know more than my guest today. Maxine Gervais has one of the best resumes in our business, with credits including Jonah Hex, The Book of Eli, American Sniper, Red Riding Hood, and The Continental, just to name a few favorites. We had an awesome conversation about Maxine's deep roots in this business, how she thinks about her craft as a colorist, and how she's tackled the many unique creative challenges that she's been faced with over the course of her long and successful career. Without further ado, let's dive into my conversation with Maxine Gervais. Hi, Maxine. Hi. How are you? (laughs) I'm good. And you? I'm good. Thanks for being here today. Well, thank you for having me. You're another guest who we've basically, because of doing the podcast, I've had the excuse to actually get to meet you in person because we've never gotten to meet in person. That's correct. Yes. So it's nice to meet in person. Well, post-COVID, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's been like the... We were just chatting a minute ago, but like, I feel like this has been the year of getting to meet in-person people who I've known either, you know, like from Zoom meetings or just because of our colors community, I guess, gets pretty small the longer we stay in it, right? Right. Yeah. And maybe COVID also, like kind of people were so isolated, it brought people to want to connect a bit more. Yeah. And I'm saying during that time via Zoom, but then like it kind of like triggered that interest that now you can pursue in person. Yeah. Because prior to that, I felt maybe there wasn't as much. Yeah. But COVID was a good excuse to get people out of their cave. Yeah, indeed. (laughs) And it's good for us to get out of the cave. Yes, yes. I'm glad to be out of the cave with you today. I'm really excited to have this conversation. You're like a superstar of color grading. Like you've been working at such a high level for so long I'd love to get a sense for like, I don't really know your career story. Like, how did you get your start? How did you find your way into color grading? Oh, I feel like I've told that story so many times, but basically I did fine arts in my little town in Quebec City. And then I really tried to like live of my art. So fine arts you can do at the beginning, the first year, let's say photography and then painting and sculpture. And then you kind of explore. And then for your final year, you pick your medium. And although I really like photography and I really like painting, I actually really love sculpture. So that's what I focused on. And when I finished, I mean, I got like a gallery wanted me to do some sculpture for them. And, you know, like it's a weird thing, right? Because it's not the era of Picasso, whatever. So you do it, but you don't get paid until like a certain amount gets, it was very complicated and you have to wait for the red dot and you're like very nervous and it's a lot of work and a lot of material. So, you know, I was like, I don't know if I want to do that. It's a different kind of era. I don't think you can live of your art the same way maybe in the past. I didn't want to teach. So I, somebody was like, oh, you should animate your sculpture. You should do robotics. And then as I was looking for robotics, I found this postgraduate school that was giving classes in computer animation and 2D animation and all these things for television and cinema. So I went to do that for a year and a half, and I've learned mostly all the Autodesk tools. So I became Flim Flame, Inferno, those kind of things. And then 3D Studio Max, do you remember that? I don't know if people still use it, but like back in the day was big. So I kind of learned all my ropes around those software. And when I was done, somebody like mentioned, hey, there's this company, Discrete. They've been hiring. You should try. Because, you know, like I sent my resume everywhere, but, you know, you have no experience. Oh, 
Actually, I forgot. I did have a little demo that I sent to Disney in California, and they did reach out. And I will always remember my English was not very good, and they had asked me for a breakdown. And I was like asking everybody, what is a breakdown? A breakdown of the demo that I had sent them, which was an underwater scene. Spent a lot of time with the texture of the fish and the lighting and everything. And I didn't know what a breakdown was. So somebody says, oh, you have to tell them step by step how you did everything, how you map the texture, how you did all that. So, so we had the first, the preliminary, like I sent them a breakdown. Then we had an interview. And then they asked me things for visa, you know, like, Basically, they were pursuing if I could come there on my own or if they would have to do a visa or things like that. And then I was so junior and so I didn't pass the third interview. So, I mean, after the third interview, they were like, unfortunately, we cannot support your visa, but, you know, maybe in a few years. So anyway, so I sent it. I was like, well, if Disney, like, reach out to me. So I sent it everywhere. I was not getting anything. And then I tried with Discreet and I got in. And then they put me in... Technical support at the beginning, my position for combustion. I uh, forgot about combustion. Combustion, yes. <laughs> Which was their new baby, you know? Uh-huh. It was like their little, like, you know, because it was kind of getting off the Flame Flame Inferno and getting into something a little bit more accessible for everybody, for all the software company. It was kind of the direction instead of having the, your big Onyx box and all that. So you could just have a PC. So they were trying to be competing with other software like that. And so I did that for a few years, and then after that, they acquired what was called SAC, which became Luster. They bought it from the Hungarian guys, and then they put me on that. And then I became just, not more just technical support, but also training. So I would go and travel and not only install the whole thing and do the lawn mapping and the sand, and, but also explain the software. So like, it was like all in one, you got me to go to India, I would be there and be able to support everything and teach you how to use the software. And that was the beginning. And then people got to know me because I went everywhere. And eventually the word traveled, I guess, this is a long story, right? (laughs) Um, The word travel, and then it was Jan Yarbrough at Warner Brothers that had Peter Doyle there for Catwoman. And Peter needed some help and there was nobody there because he was luster. Nobody there was luster and he was trying to get like an assistant to help him finish that Catwoman project. And so they had me travel to one of, I don't even remember like how my name got there. Like, to be honest with you, perhaps it was through discreet or the, yeah, he'd been the, established as an expert at some point. Yeah, the uh, through the Yasberini brothers. Like it must have been disconnection kind of thing. And so I went there. Again, I met with Peter. I thought he was a strange guy, but very interesting. And Jan was lovely. And they both really wanted me to come. But then again, the visa fell into the cracks and I couldn't go. But I guess I stayed in Peter's mind because when he went to do Harry Potter the Goblet of Fire, the fourth one. The first one was like chemical, so there was no DI. He also had Charlie and the Chocolate Factory at the same time, like literally physically scheduled same time. And he was so excited for working with Tim Burton for the first time. Obviously, he didn't want to lose that opportunity. So he also didn't want to lose Harry Potter as a contract. So He reached out and he was like, hey, you'll have to meet with the DP and the director and they have to sort of sign off on you. I'll be overseeing from over there. So 
I think his expectation was a little too high because when I arrived there, he wanted me to build a sand and... But it was like, I used to do it with discrete, with all of their like paper, like, you know, like paper, technical paper to follow step by step with their hardware and everything over there. Like I I show up in London and there you go. And I was like, I don't know how to do that. Just I'm not an engineer, you know, so I spent like really late nights trying to figure it out. And eventually he got me an engineer to come and help because I was like, this is another level. Like I, I can do color, I can operate that software, but like, this is like... But yeah, but like Mike Newell and Roger Pratt loved me and it hit it off. And I went to labs before to make sure I could talk printer points and more like, you know, really the language of the lab because it was still quite like that back then. Yeah. And people were very traditional at that time. It was the early days of DI. So I think there was a language that was way more from the film time. I mean, from the, I said the lab, the chemical, you know, process. So, I make sure like I immerse myself in that. And then I went to Hungary first to like just deep dive into, because I knew the software really well, but I wanted to make sure like I knew how an artist on a movie would use it. So I wanted to have a deeper knowledge. So I did that as well. And then uh, that was it. That was my first movie. Wow. Basically. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is like the perfect intro to so much of what I want to ask you about today, which is when I look at your work, You've worked on huge movies for many, many years now, like so many really big films. We talked about this as we were leading into this conversation. It seems like you're often sought when the filmmaker wants to do something bold or big or different. Like you're not just that colorist who's been working either underneath an actual print and then a film print emulation for most of their career. Like we both know lots of colorists who are good colorists. Right, like that's right. their thing. Yeah. You're like, like I can see it in all of your work. Like it's so varied, but I can see you're touching every shot, and shaping every shot so much of the time. And I guess it makes sense now that, that when you tell some of your backstory that you got to know the box so well when you were, I had no idea that you were a trainer and you helped <laughs> set these things up, building sands and at stuff. The, at the beginning, yeah. yeah. Like, it was very new. Like nobody knew this software. Everybody was coming from Tedesini and, yeah. you know, it was like kind of merging this kind of digital because people had done commercial and things like that digitally, but, you know, like but film too, but I'm just saying yeah. they had manipulated digitally, but it was new for film. But yeah, I think it's funny because I would argue almost that I had such a very cautious, traditional approach at the beginning, I would really literally just work printer points in density and minimum shapes at the beginning. You know what I'm saying? I was trying to be kind of faithful of how you would shape on set, which I I still have that. But at the same time, if you go back, when we first started, we were using LUTs that were emulation of film, right? The Mm -hmm. chemical process. And you would calibrate your LUTs to make sure like if you film out that's you what know, when you were done, when you print. that it would they would match the the bat, the most current bat. I mean, you didn't have to do it all the time, but like once a, every few months, you would have to make sure that. So you do a film out test, make sure your lot was in line with the bath, and depending of what lab you were going to. So, but chemically, it was bold because a lot of uh, even Harry Potter, the dailies were on print. It was print daily, so it would like really build a lot of contrast and and build a lot of character through the images and. As we evolved and eventually dropped the film emulation and developed like curves that went with the camera, like it was some 
log curves that takes you to like a nice healthy place or whatever, it was opening like a wide range of color. So when it did that at the beginning, I felt kind of inclined to remain more into that filmic world, which people might maybe drifting away from, right? So like I was still building a lot. So all of a sudden it became very stylized as the aesthetic was going somewhere else, if that makes any sense. It does, yeah. You know, and just an uh, anecdote. Can I say that? Is yeah. it pronounced yeah. correct? Okay. Like recently, not maybe a couple of years, pre-COVID, maybe three years ago, four years ago, my God, COVID is a fug. A DP asked me to have a 5219, like a real like emulation lot from the film days. And obviously at the time, Technicolor now, yeah, we have a picture shop, but at it's still the same building. We have like a library of lots, you know, we have everything. And we have Josh Pines. You have Josh Pines. He did, you know, did, yeah. like it's like, so I get him like this beautiful lot and I sent him because he really wanted, like, he was like, I want to, this is the look that I want for the movie. So I sent him the lot and then he tested and he was, ah, oh my goodness, this is way too much. Too heavy. Yeah, too heavy. And wow. I was like, well, that's really like not so long ago. You would have plugged that. But you also could argue that, you know, there was uh, people capture differently, people expose differently. There's so many things that have shifted under, under the rug. I don't know how to say it, but like yeah. without people, Beneath like it's surface. almost like it's gradual, but people like actually completely forgot the aesthetic of, they, they look at something that's like, oh, it's so filmic. Oh, it looks like so beautiful. But like, if you would look at it from like 15, 20 years ago, we have moved way past the aesthetic of the time. So, yeah. so sometimes something that might look more aggressive of a look would not be that aggressive if we just compare it, if you just take like a log image and put like a film lot on it. So Yeah. I mean, it's funny you mentioned that. I watched a couple minutes of the Book of Eli prior to our conversation. And I was thinking as I watched it, I'm like, exactly what you're saying. Like, wow, this in sort of like contemporary context feels very bold. Yeah. But I'm looking at it, I'm like, that's a skip bleach, essentially. Like yeah. That's the, the character that, I don't know if that's the, the emulation you guys went with or anything like that. Yeah, we wanted feels... a bit of an ENR, like like the old bleach bypass store, you know, feel to yeah. it without, obviously, you know, but at the time, like, it was a little bit of a hybrid. The look mm -hmm. was a little bit of a hybrid of still, like, a film emulation. Was it shot negative? Was it film capture or was it digital? No, it was digital. Okay. It was a red. Wow. That was a red? Mm -hmm. And you did that with mm -hmm. it? Wow. Yeah. Okay. Can we, let's geek out for a second. <laughs> was that like the, that's probably still the days of like red gamma four. Yeah. Were you even working the on early, a log curve? Yeah. It's, it's the, the early, early yeah. days of red. Yeah. So no log curve probably. Well, we had color science to try to okay. soften the curve for us. But I mean, it, I mean, I'm trying, it's, it's going back years ago, but like, I mean, nobody thought we could do it because right. it was so abrupt and all that. And the range was chopped and you had like, you know, I think it was like, what? three or four green for like every other color, you know, like it, right, it, it the was photo like, sites. yeah, there was a lot of technicalities to it that we weren't sure if we would be able to achieve it. But at the same time, we discussed how to, we shot it so flat. Like, I mean, we, I didn't shoot it. Don Burgess mm -hmm. shot it very flat, well really lit. Filled it in a lot. Yeah. So by really going technical on how to use it, we were able to achieve, although, yeah, we were primarily like not really log curve, not really, I believe, 
I, I don't want to say that. I have to, I have to go to my yeah, notepad. I have to be careful. Go back to the records. Right, back to the <laughs> records. But what helped me is like, even at that time, I was super animous to work from the, I never debated outside. So I did every, I would debare everything within, within the baselight and everything that would get debared outside would need to match my baselight. So that was also very helpful as far as like, I feel like college journey wise and making sure that however the material would be manipulated outside would match what I did in my box. And also it gives you more latitude in the box right. to control any anomalies, anomal, anomal. Yeah. Anomalies. An- anomalies. Yeah. Thank you. My I like goodness. yours better though. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, but it was challenging book of Eli because there was a little bit of that filmic look that Albert really wanted. That Don had work. We, like I said, to make sure that we would be having the range to achieve it. I think a lesson learned, and I'm not throwing anything under the bus. I'm just saying. I think, you know, VFX, when you go with a bold look, VFX need to be strong. Yes. And a lot of time they have little technical issues that if you're bright and soft and if you just leave it log, they're not going to reveal itself, you know, if you step on it, it will break because they're already broken, right? I love, you know, like we always have this debate between, oh, you broke the VFX. Yeah. Most likely already broken. Yeah. You know, if your cloud is jiggling, I'm not broken. The, I'm not jiggling right. the cloud. I'm you know? just showing it. The cloud's showing the jiggle because we're pushing a little bit and then you can see, you know, your yeah. technical issues. So, so I ended up having to, you know, there was some VFX that, you know, it was difficult because originally I was like, we should pre-time some of it, but they thought it would be not necessary and it, whatever, it was chasing tail. So I did a lot of VFX on this. Like I, I had to do a lot of my own darken the clouds and the green haze is all me. You know, like, I don't know if you saw it with the beginning with yes. the cat and the, the cloud of green floating. That's, that's me. You? Yeah. Like Come I did on. a lot of, yeah, I did a lot of VFX on it to try to help them and to try to also get away from maybe some things that might be broken and all that. I would try to fix it and all that. But it's a look that has hold through time. I oh personally goodness. feel, you I know. completely agree. And I mean, you're, you're talking about being at least a decade ahead of the curve on like so many of the things you're talking about now are standard practice of like, hey, VFX, we're going to give you a show let to comp under so yeah. that you can see whether your work will hold up under what we're going to do to it. All this stuff that we figured out years later, you were on the front lines figuring out in whatever that was, probably 2007 or eight. Yeah. You're grading that? Uh, eight, nine, yeah. Yeah, I mean, what a fascinating, like, as you said, like, I completely agree. That movie has held up so well, and it's just such an interesting moment in the history of how we, like, kind of master motion images because so much was in flux at yeah. that time. And you really rode that wave all the way through from there into, like, I mean, th- that's Jonah Hex was not that long afterward, I oh think. Oh, my God, Jonah Hex. You mentioned Jonah Hex. Ah, <laughs> oh, so funny. Probably one of the... Worst movies I've ever watched. Not worse <laughs> as far as the, the color was great. Uh-huh. And it was a trip to color and it was fun. But it's just like a, a, a story of a movie that would, that could have been so great that went a little downhill, I must say. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> have you ever watched a whole thing? I, you know, I think I watched the whole thing in theaters when it came you out. You did? I don't think I've seen it since. <laughs> and would I have seen it? Prob- uh, I would have seen a print of it probably at the time. I would. I, I think we were still was, printing. Yeah, I, I think. I, yeah, 
Like I can remember in those days, like I used to go back to the movie counter and ask them for a refund if they'd shown me a digital projection oh, because wow. it was like more kind of an exception. I was like, you're not going to pass anything over on me. I want to see the print. The print, right. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> Which would be crazy now. But so yeah. I, I know I saw it in the theater and I'm pretty sure I saw a print of it. Yeah. But what, what was the deal with Jonah Hex? What was that experience? Well, like? I mean, it was supposed to be a rated R movie and then all of a sudden they got cold feet. I don't know if you ever like read the comic book, no. but they are gnarly Dark. i mean you want to talk like i mean it's violent like super violent and it's rad i mean it's really good and it should have like just stayed rated r but right. i think they had a few rated r movies the studio had and they got a little cold feet and so like trying to rewrite and then try to reshoot and like water it down and it was supposed to be very racy i mean like you know crazy violent and sex like lots of sex scene and yeah. so like it just got watered down so and it got silly like the crystal ball like i mean it's just like the the from like what i read at the beginning when the script was supposed to to be and what the story was supposed to be to what it became but i mean color wise there's some scene like I, I really like when you see like the blue sky when he's like on his horse and walk i mean it's like the, this yeah. like classic western i mean we did such fantastic look and it was like a lot of work actually but I'm just saying, I'm surprised you saw it. I, I don't know anybody that saw Jonah yeah. Hex. I mean, I'm really curious with Jonah Hex. So you mentioned the script that you read. So you were obviously involved very early in that production. This is now, what, 2009, 2010, maybe, that you're... That, yeah, I think that it's right after, right, right after Book of Eli. I try to have like references or read the script every time if I can. Sure. Just to kind of, especially if we talk aesthetic ahead of time, if I know the story, I can visualize a little bit that aesthetic within the narrative of the story being told. So for me, it's more inspirational this way. Like I think to immerse myself with the story. And in this case also, like I had asked Warner to give me access to, because they had like a big box of the Jonah Hex uh, comics. comics. Yeah. So I read a bunch. They were amazing. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, like the, the looks of it, it was very Western, very gritty, you know, so I was very excited. But as you turn it into like a PG-13, you know, like obviously, you yeah, know, you like we still teeth. have a little bit of that, the bite into it, but we had to back off a little bit because it was, you know, something else. Like it was not what originally we had imagined it would be. So, yeah. but yeah, Interesting. <laughs> it still was a good look. Were you involved Prior to production on that one or, or more like during or afterwards? This one, like I wasn't involved for the dailies. I was involved for the dailies for Book of Eli. I am involved generally with the dailies if I am awarded the show right. at the very beginning. But sometimes, as you know, we are awarded the show after. Mm -hmm. And this was a case. I was awarded the show after. But what I'm saying is when they started to talk to me about the look, like when the creative wanted to talk to me, like then, you know, I asked for the script, they gave me the script, I look at the coming books, you know? So even if it's after, I will still try to immerse myself before the DI right. starts, you know? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just so curious, like I don't even know at that point in our very young craft of digital color grading, are you making like a show lot for a movie like Jonah Hex? Are you grading underneath one master look of some sort or is it all done by hand? Jonah Hex, because I was not with the dailies, I didn't give them, but I basically will have my log curve and then I'll have like, like back, back in the day, we had still sort of film lot type hybrid, Got you know, so, you know, like a viewing still, transform type well, of thing. Any, like everything we've done that we were still going to print, we would still okay. have like print lots at the time, but you know, it's always been 
at the tail end, basically grading. And now, like if I for the dailies, it will go like you'll have your log curve, and then you'll have your CDL, and then you'll have the show lot after, right? Like right. that's kind of usually how it goes. But back in the day, I, yeah, I would have like a lot that I would give to dailies that they could use and then customize it depending of the camera, the show, whatever. Now it's even more fine-tuned, you know, yeah. like it's even more like intrinsic and like there's more to it than there was back then, I feel, you know, because it was yeah. still early days. So, right. and, I mean, some of the shows back then still would do print dailies. Right. Cannot recall all of the ones, but, you know, we're still kind of like really mixed, right? Prints yeah. and because I remember even like Book of Eli because Albert really wanted, he wanted it to look like film, right? So we added grain at the time, so <laughs> some of the first, you know, and it was pretty heavy grain. And I was telling him like, hey, we're going to go to the film. Most people will see it on film, not the digital version. So right. it, the film would add even more to what we have. And then he saw like a really third generation print somewhere in Prague. It was like, see, that's the, the grain I wanted. You we could have gone. And I was like, well, but that's because it's a third generation. If I had put that on our yeah. digital, you would have like yeah. it would have been so grainy like that third generation right, that you exactly. would have, you know, I was like, like, yeah, like it looked good like uh, somewhere in a little tight theater in Prague because we didn't go crazy. Yeah. So we still laugh about that and still debate about Book how of far Eli. you should have gone with the grain. Yes, we yeah. still, you know, and it's funny because now we're doing the prequel to John Wick, and I was going to go with with more grain, and he's the one backing off a little bit. So you know, it's just wow. it's an interesting. Yeah, I was like, no, we can totally embrace the grain on this. Like it's like a series, right? So I was like, whoa, the TVs and all the yeah. <laughs> so it's the other way around. Oh, that's. I mean, I guess that's interesting because now in this case, you don't have to worry about like, oh, but what about the folks who are viewing this on a print and I've got to kind of leave a little bit of room for the grain that'll add. Yes. No more prints, I guess. No, no. So it's like, worry about that. you see what you get, you know, like, well, I'll yeah. show you an HDR, you'll see it in SDR, you'll see exactly where your grain is feeling in both of those target and we'll be, you know, we still have grain. I'm just saying, right. I was like, we can, we can really go. And he's like, ah, yeah, good level there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's so funny. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, so interesting that you've been in the DI thing kind of from those early days like that. And I'm curious, again, looking at sort of like the late 2000s, early 2010s, at what point did like ACES and color management and all that stuff come across your radar? Is that something that you adopted early or? Yeah, I mean, I, to be honest with you, I'll tell you a story that first of, I'm a bit of a geek, I guess, in a way. Like, that's why, like, when I have, like, the very strong artistic background, obviously, but that's why when I went to Discrete, they trained me very technically, but I was, like, a sponge, and I absorbed very, that's why I could understand land mapping and, and this and that. So color science came very naturally yeah. to me, the understanding of it. I'm not, like, someone that people will say it's pro and con. I tend to make it very accessible the way, like, I talk about color science, like I would talk to my daughter who's nine years old, you know, like I try to make, simplify it. So if you have a big meeting about it with the dailies people and all sorts of different people that I explain it in or different languages, you know, I explain it in a way that is going to be very easily understood instead of like using eloquent wording or whatever, but I have a very deep, so Josh and I, you know, on the same page, like, you know what I'm saying? Like he, he yeah. read my mind, I read his, we're very much on the same page. But my big, big breakthrough or something that, that for me pushed my brain was when I did 
Speed Racer, and we're talking early days again. That's prior to Book of Eli. So when I did Speed Racer, that was definitely print going to film. But they wanted to shoot Rec 709, and they wanted a color in Rec 709. But it was going to film, and it was going to be nine negative, and prints made out of that, and it was like a major print release, right? And I'm like, well, how am I going to put those Rec 709 colors on print? It was a colorful show. Yeah, it's like a bunch of bright primary <laughs> Very stuff. Very colorful. I mean, it was, I'll circle back to that story after, but it remind me of the ASC, me sitting there, and DP's talking about Speed Racer when I'm, when I'm done. So there was a guy at the time that had come from ILM working with us at Pacific Title. That's even before, like, you know, I went to MPI. Mm-hmm. And then Technicolor, so and then Picture Shop, but it was a Pacific Title, and there was this guy called Blake Sloan that had come from ILM, and he was from the color science type background at ILM, like you know, in the VFX world. So he understood very well color science from the VFX perspective. It was brilliant, and he would help me create my LUTs and tweak things, and when you do the side by side, so. Very, very smart guy. So I tell him, is there a way to, and I'm going to try to simplify this because, you know, like it's, but he got it. I mean, even like if I told, so I was like, is there a way when you create this, you know, Ford lookup table to invert all these values? So basically what I was trying to achieve is I would put something, like it would make like a completely erroneous, like not usable negative, right? Mm. But I would like basically plug this invert lot into my grade and then it would go forward. I'm destroying the color in a way, you know, like, so I'm thinking like everything that is positive, you're going to reverse and then we're going to go forward. So basically I'm going to force these colors into, and he was like, oh, I don't know. So like, you know, he's like, he's giving me all sorts of version and everything is breaking. And so, you know, because we had like pure blue, like, I mean, there is no pure colors that would go on film. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like there's, there's no like this pure RGB you can get digitally. You don't get that when you go chemically. And I know that I knew that I wouldn't be able to fit anything. And I was trying to tell the uh, Wachowski, this is going to be like impossible. Like we should, you know, not grade in 709. We should do like a 709 to this, to P3 and do like that. And then this way at least, but they wanted those colors. They wanted those colors. We capture this and we want this, wow. you know, On and the they print. were like, if we have to compromise the print, we'll compromise the print, but people that will see it and like properly will be the ones that see it digitally. And I was like, well, yeah, but like yeah, theaters are still print. Most theaters, yeah. You know, so for me, it was like, I can't, I have to give them the best that I can. So we, Blake worked and worked on doing these inverse. So you basically mirror, right? You understand like the values are just going kind of opposite, right? Mm-hmm. So you grade, that goes under your grade. And then the, the four, it goes after that inverse. Mm-hmm. And in this way, you're basically taking all your color, you're like making the negative value and then they go back positive and then you could get pure RGB output. So you're essentially, if I'm understanding correctly, you were trying to get Blake to build something for you that would invert what the print was going to do yes. so that you could get a net, you know, like yes. if you pass through a red, red one, green zero, blue zero, yeah. you get close to that on the 2006, print. 2006, 2000. And this was your idea? Yes. 
Yes, okay. you can ask Blake Sloan. He will. You can go and call him at. Uh, he works at Marvel now, and he will wow. confirm this. <laughs> you are a color science wizard. That's I, I, a great I, I, idea. But I, I, you know what? It's funny though, like because I'm really good at math and stuff, but like I'm super like uh, intuitive. So that's why, like, the words to me, like, people also can be very technical and say that. But, like, I, I'm more just like, oh, no, but, like, if we do that, it should work. And if you do, I'm more like that. And I have, like, a crazy workflow for Dolby as well, like that, that Josh approved, that people are like, what? Completely yeah. reverse engineering because that's how my brain works. But, you know, okay. I don't sound very techy, but if you put me to it, it's like I, I'll come up with crazy Clearly. workflow. <laughs> yeah. So Blake is, like, working, working. We finally get it. And it was a mad delivery, like mad delivery. And that's a story that I'm telling you. That I don't know. I told, I don't think I told anybody, but it's like, I work 110 hours a week for two weeks <laughs> in a row. And we're like about to, we had to deliver. And I remember one night I was like, I listen, like, I know we have a good invert, but I have to QC everything before it goes to print because I, I don't know. Like this right. was like the most colorful movie I've ever worked on. And it's still early in my career. So, you know, there's a lot of pressure. Like, I'm happy to work with the washes key. It's a Joel Silver because Joel Silver, like, was feeding me a lot of work, too. So, like, vouching for me for, for his up-and-coming. The washes key were not up-and-coming, but for a lot of up-and-coming. But also, right. they met with me because Joel, like, vouched yeah, for me. Yeah, he vouched for you. So, it's, I think, four in the morning. And I call somebody, which I'm not going to say the name. But I, I say, I can't. I have to go home and come back in the morning with fresh eyes and QC this because I am, I'm wiped. You're fried. Yeah. I, I can't see sh shit. Excuse my French. <laughs> you know? So it's like, I was like, I cannot do this. I am absolutely incapable of QCing and I can't really delegate everybody. You know, I've always had a small team, but if I'm fried, they're fried. Everybody's fried. And it was like, absolutely not. We have a deadline. They said we have to film this tonight. I was like, oh, like four in the morning to like, if I come back, like in five hours, really? Like, yeah. absolutely not. We got to film out. So we film out like it was like, let's say real five, right? Mm -hmm. And I get the print in the afternoon the next day. Yeah, it looked good side by side. Everything looked good. And then, you know, you have Speed Racer flying his car in the sky. And like, it's supposed to be blue sky. And all of the sky, all of a sudden it's like all purple everything purple and it was like like the only scene that we had this kind of blue primary color going through the other scenes were like not in that kind of range of primary color but sure. it was like a scene in the sky and i'm like i am dying right even like a darker blue or a less bluer blue right, or a blacker blue magenta blue yeah. I, but it's purple yeah like it's like just purple so i'm like oh man and I'm imputable at the end of the day. It doesn't matter that somebody, this and that. So I call everybody. I'm like, this. I have to reject it. But there's been like nine negative recorded of that reel. You understand how yeah. much it means money-wise? Yes. Okay, Perfect. that's a lot of dough. So <laughs> I raise the flag. I'm like, it's no good. Those nine negative are, are trash. And not, none of it is good. So there's a meeting being called and then... Joel Silver comes in, the washes, keys are there, everybody's there. And I'm like showing them the print. And I said, I'm sorry, I wanted more time. And this is a very complicated thing we're doing and we have to rework the invert, you know? Like, right. So I have to go back and we have to figure the math for this particular range. And I was lucky enough that the washes, everybody like, were like, hey, you need time. You call us direct to our line. It's fine. What are you doing? It's so wonderful. We, can't, we, we didn't even think we could get those colors. 
no worries no worries it's like we're talking like so much money like i was like i was i was like my career is over i'm crying like depressed you know and no everyone was like thought like it was so brilliant that in the first place i was able to give them that and it was so close so blake and i go back we do lick like wedges and wedges and I make sure like all the other blues that are coming in other scenes are going to like match and I pass through and I get like a day, a full day to be able to QC and make sure everything's going to fit. And then we do it. I mean, we like meaning like he's the one writing, obviously the invert, but like doing all the, yeah. but like, we, we test it and it works. And then we got Speed Racer, the most colorful movie on print. And then one day I was in, uh, at the ASC coming back to my story and I hear this DP talking about HDR. It's like, you wouldn't want Speed Racer on the HDR. Imagine what it's going to do. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, it got quoted. Not for the, probably not for the, the good reason. But if everybody, anyone knew the madness of being able to output those colors. And it was funny because way later on, now studios, when studios started to ask for archive and they wanted print archive, they're using this. This is the method now because we don't use film simulation anymore. Nobody right. uses film emulation. So you can't like just film out a print. Right. It's not going to look anything. It's not going to be a reference. The intent. So they're using that. They came in with that like years later. So I always tell Blake, you know, we should have patented our like, you know, we should have like, but for me, it was like, it was not like a thing of like, oh, look at me. I did that. It was like, how can I, I make this, this happen for this movie? Wow. And then, you know, move on. But it's funny because it, it became something that now we tell the studio, your negative is worth nothing. It, only the print yep. is going to be useful because the negative, like you would look at the negative and you'd be like, what the hell? Because right? the colors are all insane. over the place. You do that in order to be able to fit, to get the print to look like the movie. And the print becomes your archive. So that's my story. Wow. At, from one color science geek to another, I'm having fun as you're talking, trying to visualize what the cube of that inverse LUT looks like. It must look insane. Oh, no, it looks crazy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like that's what I'm saying. When you, when you, if, you, if you take off your Ford and you just look at it, everything's clipping, everything is whack, colors look, yeah. you know, it's awful. It's I mean, anticipating it's, what's to come from yes, the print. Yes, and then it fits like, so it stretches to the limit. Yeah. You know, like completely destroys your negative, basically, in order to yeah. fit. But like, it's like, a, yeah, it's a reverse engineering. Okay, so I want to switch gears for a minute. And we talked about HDR a couple times in the last few minutes. You know, as we talked about, you've had this career that's really run from like it's run through a good chunk of this whole young discipline of digital color grading. And now you're still working and still doing all kinds of amazing color. And I imagine you're doing a lot of HDR these days. Am I getting that right? Yeah. I mean, who doesn't? Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, it's part of, of the like a, part of the game now. Mm-hmm. The the Dolby yeah. HDR, right? Because for for a little bit there, there was like HDR10 where you could potentially do 709 separate and HDR10 separate. But yeah. A few studio were still doing it, which was kind of nice yeah. in a way. But I think now everybody has adopted the Dolby. So any right. HDR that is called for is through the Dolby world. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I got I to gotta ask about your Dolby moves. I don't know if I want to give my secrets. I'm not sure. I I don't blame you at all. If I had your secrets, I wouldn't either. Yeah. What's great that I can tell you is like I'm embracing the Dolby, mm-hmm. definitely, but in a reverse engineering way. And I think by doing so, it has made my client embrace HR way more. Mm-hmm. 
And I can give you a hint to my workflow. I do not grade in HDR. Gotcha. <laughs> That's a secret. So I do great HDR. I get my HDR graded, but when I do my session with my clients, it's in SDR. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I reveal the HDR. I buy that 100%. (laughs) I have a hunch you are not necessarily trimming every shot in that case. Basically, I have different LUTs for my HDR, so I can constrain it. Not constrain it, but like I can round it at 600 or round it at 1,000, or I can go a little bit above 1,000 so that, like if you have a 4,000 nits delivery, arguing that maybe in the future we can use a lot of light and very little energy. So if some studio asks for 4,000, I can like round it a little higher than 1,000 nits for that as well. So I have different flavor of lots for that. However, when I grade, there's different approach. So if I have a movie that, although we're doing a projection version, but the primary delivery or what's going to be most important, you know, like maybe it'll be two weeks in theater, but then it's going to live forever. I might already grade the projected version into Dolby Universe, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Or any of my series that will do Netflix or whatsoever, it looks like I'm grading a good old SDR, normal, but it's already all under the It's under a Dolby thing. It's under the Dolby thing. So I'm, I'm grading along, doing that. It's already... The secret where I'm not going to reveal is how am I able to achieve that, right? Because there's multiple steps. Mm-hmm. You cannot just put Dolby great. Like there's an order of like how I can do this in order to achieve what I'm telling you that I'm going to achieve. So I, yeah. I do it. So I'm grading. I'm already in Dolby. I have done different steps, you know, and there's like to be able to get the result that I want. So they sign off on SDR. As I was doing my SDR, I am blindly, but because I've bulletproofed that workflow, I'm blindly grading my You're HDR. You're blind piloting the HDR. Yeah. Yes. And then when you side-by-side side them, they are lining up beautifully. So basically, I'm not, you know, like sometimes, like either you do, you grade an HDR for your clients, right? And then you give them this beautiful thing. And you're like, well, you know, we're going to, you know, I can only do so much with the SDR. We're using the Dolby slider and this and that. And, they, you know, they're interlinked, right? So Right. We might compromise the SDR and you could pitch it as like, well, you know, because the SDR is kind of like, eventually nobody will see that anyway, right? Right. Well, I mean, that's a rich concept because like (laughs) Europe is mostly SDR. The rest of the world is mostly SDR and I care about everybody. Like I want people in India seeing my movie the same way. Like, so to me, SDR is still the master. I always think of the master in that, you know, yeah, in the future, maybe only HDR will remain and my HDR will be beautiful and healthy and will pass through time. But I like to have a good healthy. So I'm not willing to compromise that. I'm not willing to use a bunch of slider to try to come and get it as best as I can to the HDR. And the way I do it, then you get like a fantastic HDR that is not overly crunch or stretch or all of a sudden you have highlights that compete that you didn't want it to compete. It really kind of maps it where I want it, but blindly. So then when I do the side-by-side, I'll have perhaps, I would say per scene, 10 to 20 shots that I have to trim in HDR. Like let's say maybe they want to a little too bright or too dark that I have to adjust. And then I'll use the Dolby slider to make my to SDR to make my SDR back to what it, what it should be. So it's really reverse engineering, but it gets me like 
And then the DPs, like, I mean, they've been embracing the, you know, my last session, we had watched SDR the whole time. And I was like, okay, like, I'm ready to show you the HDR. And then the client was like, oh, close the other. I mean, I just yeah. want to see that now because it is, it's not like a shocking, it's not like, oh, it's not my movie. What is this? It's their show. It's their movie. And then it has this immersive feeling without having competing element or, you know, feeling too stretch or inky or like getting like yeah. a different kind of aesthetic that yeah. they were aiming for. That makes perfect sense. And I think all secrets revealed or not, you've given us some really good lessons. Like I love you, know, you just said it's reverse engineering. You've designed a system, a pipeline for producing results that align in the way that you want them to, as opposed to aiming at things like whack-a-mole style, shot after shot, scene after scene, show after show to try to get HDR and SDR kind of level. It sounds like you've got systems in place to help you Yeah, do that. well, because this is a hyperactive yeah. mentally, right? I mean, how can I get that? <laughs> you know, you get like, sometimes it's a happy accident or sometimes it's, not that you get burned, but like, you know, like it's like, oh, surely like it cannot yeah, be that, that hard. Be it shouldn't be like way. this. And it's like, I don't want to be handcuffed yeah. to a workflow that is not mine. I don't want like Dolby to dictate, sorry, Dolby. I don't want Dolby to dictate how I'm going to work. And I don't want Dolby to develop a grading tool within the grading tool, right? right. I, that becomes like counterintuitive. Like that's a little too much of a beast. I don't want like eventually like Dolby is going to be, become my tool. And then I have to, no. I think what they did is fantastic. I think if you know how to navigate through it, it's fantastic. I just think you have to be creative with the workflow. You have to explore things, see what works, how you can make it work. And it's to trials and errors and really trying. Because, you know, a lot of people were like either they're, they hate HDR because you'd start and then it's crank down, crank down, crank down. And because it, it, they think it's so bright, right? Even if there's a lot that takes it at 600, they're not used to this, let's say. So they crank down everything. And then, like, they have their look that they love, right, in HDR. And then there is the is like, I have nothing left. Right. Even if you try to, you cannot do positive lift, right? Just a little bit by 0 0.02 yeah, something. or something, yeah. You know, so it's like, well, you know, and then, like, stretching and trying to, like, you know, like it's going to be compromised. And it's like, you have to sell that. And I'm like, I'm never for compromise. I want to give you both. Yeah. I want you to be happy, like, on both. So I'll do whatever it is, and I'll validate it with Josh Pine. It's like, that's brilliant, Yeah. Of course it's going to work, Maxine. <laughs> I'm like, okay, Judge said it's okay, let's do it. This so. is your campaign platform for president of the new colorist union whenever we get around to, you know, like forming such a thing. I, that makes such good sense to me. I yeah. love that. Yeah, and I mean, I feel like that's a, it sounds like a big part of your current workflow, but I'm also curious now today in 2023, when you're grading your shows or your films or the things that you're tackling, have you adopted this sort of like, what people might call like an LMT or like a scene look that's happening before your output transform? No? Custom uh, everything. Yeah. I never have any. Uh, so you just do It's like your output transform and then everything is yeah. your hands. Yes. Very I cool. even don't tell anybody most of the time, ditch the CDL. You know, mm -hmm. unless I did it myself, the mm -hmm. CDL. You know, yeah. it's just like, or, or unless I inherit something that I know that. Sure. Mostly there and, you know, like, yeah, there's some like more straightforward shows. It's a comedy. They got like kind of a good level. I go and balance it, add a little bit of my touch, you know, and maybe the CDL can be helpful. But if it's like something I already have, like a look development, we've talked about it. You know, the CDLs are good for the studio, for picks to send it out there to just right. make it look nice and healthy that nobody's screaming, ah, you know, so they're there for that. But like I usually like everything's custom, everything. It gives me way more latitude. 
I mean, the good isn't the good. I don't know. That's how I do it. You know, that's yeah. how I've always done it. So I've not explored that. I have not explored outside of my. <laughs> I mean, whatever you're doing is working. That's that's working great. Do you have like a part? You're in a base light, right? Yes, yes. Okay. Do you have a part of your layer stack that is a consistent thing that you've developed that kind of like stays for all of your shots or scenes? Or is it just scene by scene, shot by shot, you're grading and building what it's going to be? Well, I'm very organized. Mm -hmm. So everything's kind of labeled. So I have like my balance pass. So there's right. a layer that is there just to balance. And then I'll have like my basic looks and then I build upon and everything that I'll put, I will... So my, if you look at my stack, they're very organized and, and you know what's what and you can find yourself in there, you know, beauty, shaping, like what it's shaping, you know, like, so I, I do that. But no, I have never like took something from another movie and brought it to another thing or from another show and brought it. Like it's always Carte Blanche. I'm starting fresh on everything because, yeah. you know, even for the lots, depending of like the cameras, we do camera tests. I'll tweak, you know, I have like my curve that I really like. It's very open. It's very, it's like more luggish in the sense that it's not very aggressive. I always try to sell it and say like, hey, do whatever you want with the CDL, but use this because it's going to be healthy and it's going to put us in a good place. I think, I don't want to go by age or discriminate, but I think for a certain generation of DP, it's more easy to adopt. Sure. They love this stuff curve. They love what it does. They love like where things land. And for a younger generation of DP, sometimes it's a little bit, they're more used to like the K1S1 or like things that are like, you know, more aggressively to start with and really punchy. Right. So it's kind of an adjustment. But a lot of time, I, if I get them to, like I say, well, look, and if you do this and when you expose and if you don't go like, you know, more than five steps above, above gray and this and that, you'll see, like you will be in kid in garden playing, having, eating candy in the DI room. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, trust me. You'll be in a great so, place. So like people, yeah. So most of them, but like, I will tweak a little bit. They'll be okay, you know, I love it, but can you add a little bit of, you know, just a tiny bit of contrast, just a tiny bit of this, you know, and then we do our camera test and all that. And, and then we set on something and then Josh goes and compile all of this for my AGR and all my output right. and all that. But apart from that aspect that I start with the same base lot, that I have for each camera. And if there's a new camera, I will, you know, modify for that. Apart from that, everything between that and the target and all that is all custom per show. That's your house. Yeah. That's where you party. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> That's really cool. That's really cool. <laughs> wow. Fascinating. I'm curious because we've talked about your color science department and in particular, Josh Pines a couple of times already today. What is that relationship like? What is it like to have a color scientist who you can reach out to and, and collaborate with as needed. Like, what do you guys do together? How do you work together? I mean, I, I think like in a way, if you can speak the same language, you know, I am not talking French and English. I think I have to say very little to Josh to understand what I'm saying or where I'm going or, I mean, it's, it's very fascinating because we're often on the same page or even before we have a pre-meeting, before we have the meeting with the clients, let's say for the dailies. And because, you know, if I, when I'm involved with the dailies, you know, providing the lots and what we recommend and this and that. And, you know, he's also very artsy. He's very out there, big personality. Yeah. So I, I, I love Josh. So I don't know. It's like we, yeah, develop our own language. He knows how I like to work. Even when I get there and you could ask him, but like, I know when I got there, I was the first one to really, there were people with baseline that he had dealt with, but I was the first one really implementing the DRT style 
kind of workflow. A lot of people were still just plugging a lot, like a full-on lot at the tail end. You know, like they sure. didn't have like separate, like I'll have my my curve, my grade, and my output lot, like kind of like the DRT style. I don't know if you know a little bit baseline, but it's just yes. kind of deconstructed a little bit than just having your show lot at the tail. You know, that would compile, you know, like it's a little different. So I don't know if I explain it right, but people were basically, you could be just like all across, you know, just let's say, there'd be like no color journey. It'd be like, you know, it'd be like, let's say log and then I'll put. So more of like a, like a display referred, like just grading (laughs) everything to the display by hand. Yes. Okay. Yes. So that's kind of like a lot of people workflow. Yes. So when I came in, I was like, So like he had to scratch his head at the beginning. He had to come up with like, cause he had to create these DRT, which was fascinating with the DRTs. Like you have this curve and then on the output, you just say where you're going and it does it all for you, right? Like that's the color journey. It just like maps everything. You don't have to change your lot for everything that you're going to do. You just have this. You flip your output. You just flip your output and it knows how to map everything. So, but when I got there, they didn't do that. So like, I remember like at the beginning, it was like a little frustrating and we might've butt head a little bit, but then when he had his aha moment, then it was like, everybody should do this, you know? Like, so I, I know that other color is, I would like started using that workflow as well. So yeah. yeah. I, but I, I don't want to sound just like a geek. I love, like I'm ultimately an artist. I'm just saying, but you know, there's a lot of, you have to put a lot of love in that as well to protect the finished I, yeah. product. I think your artistic side shines through when you're talking about these things, because as you point out, that's how creative intent is protected and preserved for all these different deliverables. Yeah. That makes perfect sense to me. Very cool. Yeah. And I'm curious now, you know, now we're starting to talk more about your process in Baselight, which I know for maybe a lot of us listening, there's I'm sure plenty of Resolve users out there and and folks who the Baselight is sort of mysterious to, but I'm just curious about in general, when you're in the base light, do you have like, all right, these are my half a dozen tools that I always work with by default and I kind of branch out when I need to? Or are you always mixing and matching and trying out new stuff on every project? What's your relationship with that tool set? I mean, I'll mix and match, but I do have my preferred differently. Like all my balance is always done in film grade, film grade. old traditional. Yeah. And I customize also sensitivity of my knobs and like the quarter points for, you know, like, so I have a lot of very fine-tuned magazine way that yeah. my team all has to have the same fine-tune. <laughs> you know, like I have, we're three, same guys with me for over 13 years now. So These are like, the colorist, color assistants who support you. Yeah, Jeff is, you know, he was kind of more of an assistant, but now like I fully give him credit for being like a colorist in his own title. Because we've done sometimes four shows at the same time, and he's done a lot of pre-grading, like the balancing pass I'm talking about. Sure. And then, or at the tail end, I'm on another show, so he, like, and we get a bunch of VFX. He can match them to my look. So he's built more, and you know, like if there's been like little project here and there that I couldn't do, like student film or whatever, like he's been able to do a few of those as well. So you have to have aspirations. So like I think he's very talented, and he's you know building up and all that. So, and Eric is like, I mean, he's a genius you know of an editor conform but like he when I got them in my team I wanted everybody to be able to do a little bit because I used to do kind of everything for myself so like the format which is madness you know I would do myself and do all the math and make sure that everything pixel to pixel it drives me bananas but I you know I was in charge of that so if I would open a scene and it would be like format change I would flip out you know like I'm very nice, but I would flip out. I would be like, oh my God, like who opened? And it would, what, what format changed? You know, because everything yeah. is like, you can like screw things up. 
So I wanted all of them to know of everything, but then I delegated certain tasks so that Jeff, mostly like me, Jeff can only touch the format. Eric is the whiz of like, I mean, Eric is like, if there's a new version of Baselight, he will know all the tools before us. I mean, I don't know how gotcha. he does it. Like, oh yeah, you can like go over there and uh, you paint this like with this new paint tool and like, you know, he knows everything. When did you learn that? I thought you were working. Yeah, he's just like, he's just brilliant. I don't wow. know how, like, I don't know how he does it, but he's just brilliant. So, so we're a very well oiled machine. Because of that, I have my basic tools, like, the, you know, the film grade, a hue shift I loved. I mean, the texture equalizer I like. I do my grain custom. So I scan different stocks of grain mm-hmm. and then I come them myself and control the speed and control the level. And and then because we do a lot of grain, I don't do the live grain. And none of my clients and none of my show, none of my film have had live grain. You're not the live grain guy, right? I'm no, not I'm the sorry. live grain guy. No. <laughs> How dare you? I'm just teasing. That was a joke. Uh, so I don't do like, you know, so I get customized. And then I don't know. There's so many tools in Baselight. It's such a powerful thing. Yes. I mean, there's five things that I don't do curve grade. I still wait. They're not allowed even like, I don't want to, if I see it in my stack, you're fired. Uh-oh. You know, like meaning like, Get it out of there. it's a very dangerous tool. And if it's, if you don't know how to use it right, it can, I've, I've seen a lot of, I'm sure someone could have watched my grade and say, oh, that's broken. Maybe like it might happen to everybody, but like, I know for a fact that I've seen people using this and it, it breaks the grade. Like I, I've, set eyes on that. So there's certain things like if I use a curve grade, it's going to be specific for something to maybe save some highlights or go and grab something specifically, but it's not allowed in my stacks. But per project, I use a lot of blend. I do a lot of VFX. I do a lot of beauty. So it's, it's a little bit all over the place, whatever I need. I remember, I think my earliest curiosities with Baselight might be your fault because I remember reading an interview with you talking about Sully and talking about the way you use the layers. And there's something in there about the, I think you might've been talking about blend modes or like using them in a kind of unusual way for some of that film, which has a very distinctive look. I had forgotten about that until right now. I was like, that was an interview with Maxine where you were talking about just the way you were talking about the layers and the way you work with the base light. I was like, what is a base light? I didn't even know what it was at the time. (laughs) And I went off and learned it because I was so fascinated by it. Boy, that was a beautiful looking movie, wasn't it? So, yeah, it was nice. I mean, it was a lot of white hair and white sky. But apart from that, yes, it's <laughs> a little tricky, you know? And you like you got to get in there with that curve tool with to it. roll that over. You give it a little haircut. But, you know, it's a, I think my movies with Clint, I think, I mean, it's a controversial movie, but American Sniper was a great look. And, yes. you know, Tom and I were really proud of, of that. And then now, like, I have also worked with Eve has done like a few movies with Clint and mm-hmm. even I now are doing also other movies because he's, he's done a lot of movie with Clint, but then also Jonathan Levine. So now we're doing movies with Jonathan, but I really like Richard Joel. That was a good look. Yeah. That was a great one too. You know, like a little bit more. That's the one that Eve wanted the 5219. And when he got it, he was like, ah, <laughs> this is too much, you know? So crazy. we're still kind of like, you know, it's a rich movie. Yeah. Like, like he wanted to have a bit of that era feel and all that, but like, not quite like the good old film emulation. Yeah. <laughs> Less. It's so funny you mentioned that. I feel like I've talked about it with you know people who I work with as a colorist or certainly other colorists. Part of the film thing that is one of the hardest things to replicate when you're doing an emulation, quote unquote, is that you're burdened with having to look at it before the emulation. 
And that way, when you have that context and you turn it on, you're like, whoa, that's not my movie anymore. Right. Whereas with a film, it's like you don't see the non-film version of your print. Like it's just, it has that strong slope in the middle and that shadow compression and all that color stuff that that's just the only way you ever see the images. So right. you don't have the chance to sort of pump the brakes and be like, whoa, is this too crazy? Whereas right. when you're emulating film, I think that's a lot of people's reactions today is when you do a full strength one-to-one emulation, it's like, wow. That is yeah, and sometimes it, like if you don't go and if you don't look at like a restoration print, like if you really get like an old print from a movie from the nineties, like I mean, I can give you like an example or the seventies or eighties. If you yeah. go look at the orange clock, it's quite Clockwork orange, yeah, clockwork orange, you know, print and all that. It's like everything is way more bold than yeah. people like remember. We've seen a lot of like you would have the print and then they would make the home video version, which most of the time was way too bright. You right. know what I'm saying? A lot of time. So the memory that people have a film sometimes I feel is like a false memory syndrome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like It's like they remember the idea of Gone with the Wind on their TV that's been restored, right. the color, the digitalized, go see the old print. It would have a, like it has a different film, but nobody has access to those old print. Right. You know, unless you have a movie theater that, you know, has kept all these beautiful print that they screen once in a while. Most of the time, it's like a a digital version. It's been restored. It's been digitized. And then trying to be faithful, but I've seen people doing restoration, trying to be faithful to like an old print is a challenge as well. They have to find the elements and put it, piece it back. Sometimes they have just the neck, sometimes just a piece of the print, this and that. It's all patched together. So we have really moved away from that aesthetic. And it's like our nostalgic idea of what film was. But film was bold, generally speaking. And obviously, everybody had different ways to approach it. But I remember that the last film that I thought was like, okay, like that is beautiful, mastered film. There was two. There was two magician, magician, and I'm sorry for the colorist that did the one digitally. I don't know who that is. But there was two magician movies that came at the same time. One, I think, was Nolan. Yes. Um, and the other one was like... The Prestige and The Illusionist. The Illusionist. Yes. And I was like, the print was like this absolute masterpiece. But like, even that, I challenge anybody to go back and look at that print and realize how much, how bold it is. Yeah, like those shadows are gone in some scenes. How bold yes. and beautiful. Yeah. And it's like, now like, it's like, you know, I have Albert, I have Clint, I have a few clients that embrace strong shadow. I have a book about that, Black and White Lighting, John Alton, I think, I can't remember. But like- Painting with light. Yes. It's, it's somewhere in the in the studio. I love that book. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, you know, like, so that, there's something that I use. And other people, like, are shying away. They're afraid. But maybe just the eye. Like, it's like this, this kind of fear. Because we have moved away from that aesthetic fundamentally. Nobody yeah. wants to admit it. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a little bit of, of what it is. And it's funny because I just did a movie with A.V. Rockwell. Like, <laughs> keep your eye on this woman. I mean, she is brilliant. And... We did like, probably you want to say, like you're saying, oh, people go to you because bold and this and that. I mean, if I've done something that is bold, like it looks like a 1990 print, that is it. You know, I mean, we went for it. I think originally maybe she wanted to go more aggressively, but like, you know, to hold up into like the medium that we have today, we pulled back a little bit and kind of drift and give it a different arc together. But at the end, she was so, I mean, thrilled and it's a Beautiful image, but it's like, even for me, it went outside my comfort zone. And which film is this? Uh, it's called A Thousand and One. It just won Sundance 
the drama. Oh my goodness, grand jury. the Grand Jury Prize. Yes, yes. Oh my goodness, I haven't yes. seen this yet. I gotta yes. check it and out. Yes, I mean, you read any reviews and they're talking about the color in a positive way. A I mean, because way. it's like it takes yeah. you to New York. It feels like a 1990 print. Yeah. Like it has like because also we had like some stock shots that literally she was like, oh, you know, not like can you imagine stock shot to what we just filmed, but it was more like hybrid of both, right? Bring the stock shot more to what we shot, but also bring the shot where we shot to look more like the stock shot so that it flows really nicely. So, it, it, I mean, it's, it was a very fun wow. look, but like, it's like, it's very rare. You'll hear me say, I mean, Albert pushed me out of my comfort zone sometimes on certain things. He's such a creative powerhouse and it's, I am the luckiest girl in the world to be working with him. This is Albert Hughes. Yes. I work really well with Kim Miles too. We did like, a, he's nominated for an ASC on the show. We worked together where we did three strip color. That was difficult. I did do four different lookup tables for him for onset, which one of them were like a four three strip three color. Strip. And that was like challenging. And, but it ended up like, I mean, it's a crazy, I think that's the episode he got nominated. I mean, it's wow. absolutely amazing. But that was custom. Like I did like, I gave him the lot and then I ditched that and I recreated it all custom. Wow, like, really? Because the lot was like, with Josh Pine, we worked really for that specific lock. I had like stacks and we compiled and put it in my curve and then did an output and all that. But then was able to separate basically the curve, my beautiful curve I love, yes. to my color. So I had even like both separately. I could just give the color, just give the curve and have them like plug them together. So we could really have control of that look because it's not an easy look to recreate. Yeah. But like on AV, it was funny because. If you've seen my work, generally speaking, although I can be bold and I can have some sort of contrast, I'm not very stretch. You're not I'm, like aggressive. I'm very open. Like the, the looks are quite, so they can be darkness, but I'm not very high contrast. I'm not a high con type of generally speaking. So mm -hmm. yeah, we build Shadow and Book of Eli, but you could... If you really look like you'll see through like a big, nice, soft curve all the way to the deep end. So you can kind of see the roll off of the shadow. And with AV, it was like, we went for it. Like, and I was it. like, ah, even me, I was like, so I would just add incrementally. And eventually, like, you know, you like, you learn to love the aesthetic and you, you can embrace it. But like for a little moment there, I was like, oh, I think I'm a little outside of my comfort zone, but let's go for it. You know? Yeah. Like, so, yeah. So like it's, and that's fun to just get pushed and explore and. And I, I'm very lucky to have creative that will trust me to venture and to push the envelope and That's in so a way. cool. That's so cool. Okay, so I have a question for you. If you're thinking about, you know, like you, you just gave us so many good insights about film emulation and about this sort of like nostalgia or idealization we tend to have when we say, oh, I want a filmic look or I want to do an emulation. Most of the time, what we mean is not, I want a one-to-one that contrast curve, that level of grain, that color gamut. We want the best of that or what we remember most fondly of that and probably through the lens of, you know, like a TV master or whatever. But so if I walk in tomorrow and I say, hey, I want you to grade my movie and I want to do a really filmic thing. I want to do a film emulation. What does that mean to you? What do you do with that when that kind of direction comes into you? Well, I mean, first of like, there's so many different film emulation we had different stock at the time yeah. what kind of stock are we talking about what kind of chemical bath process you know like a straightforward ENR like what, it, what you know there's so many variables you know like what movies do you have in mind 
right? That right. Uh, evoke that film era that you like. Is it like a you know Deep Shadow? Is it like a what is it the the, the girl that talked with the hat? She you know they're trying to make her like a good a good woman. Uh, Audrey Hepburn, you know she. Oh, oh. Uh, she uh, talk my, as much as I do, you My know? fair lady. My fair lady. Yeah. Like, you know, what are we yeah, talking you about? Yeah, feel like that. <laughs> like, what is it that, you know, like, are we talking three strip? Are we, like, there's a lot of different era yeah. of films. So that's the first thing. Maybe have some, I think back in the day, they had good still photography that you can actually, more than having access to that print or having, or like remembering from the restoration TV or, or home video version that had been made of it. There's some good still photography oh, that can like be more faithful sometimes the way smart. they would do it back then because they would also chemically develop those stills and you know so like sometimes you can have access to that kind of thing and I, I will sometimes show obviously if I have a library a lot but a lot of times it's very rare that people want something like a very very further era or at least it's like a hybrid of that they kind of want the deep shadow or these kind of colors or, you know, skew colors, you know, because you didn't have like pure green or pure reds pure blue or whatever. Or, yeah. 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 Like a little bit the dirty whites or whatever. So it's like I said, it's often more so like a hybrid. And then I develop and, you know, like as we go, it's my job, right? To translate and capture it and like just deliver. But yeah, so it's kind of not a one answer because you really have to have a feel for what it is that they want. I also like, I laugh a lot because a lot of time, you know, people want like right now, like it's, almost a trend, you know, like the grain. Everyone wants grain, right. grain, grain, grain. And sometimes there's grain. I'm like, it, it looks like digital noise. I mean, come on. It yeah. doesn't look like grain. You know what I'm saying? Like, yes. that is not like how grain. It's not how it interacts. It, I don't or... care what tool you're using. It ain't grain. You know, like it looks like digital noise. Yeah. And it's funny because you look at something from Nolan and you can barely see the grain. They're tra- yeah. He's, he's... like the light, the, all the... When we were still on film, it was like, oh, less grain, less grain. Get like, rid of it. Yeah. Everybody like wanted like the most clean, pristine, no grain. And then like the nostalgia kicked in after like a few years of having these clean images and all of a sudden like like wanting the, the grain. So if you're gonna do grain, try to do grain the real way, which for me it's like scanning like the stock that you want and you have in mind. And you know, there was a weird thing with grain where sometimes like the speed felt a little off almost like not off, but you know what I'm saying? Like there was like sort of a a weird speed feel towards the image, or like there was like all sorts of like that now you would say as technical weirdness right but it also was absorbed everywhere in a lot of like what's more difficult to capture nowadays or when people use plugins for grain is that it's mm-hmm. hard to see it on your mids and your highlights and your lows you know you tend to sit mostly in a range like a specific range and even I struggle with that even with my scan grain and blend it and comp it on top and I go like depending of like like I mean I Follow the speed of the image, obviously. I don't go right. like, you know, but sometimes you might, let's say it's, you might skew it by like five frame, you know, just a little off. It's not much, but yes. it's just enough to give it like a weird dynamic, like registers a little bit more. You have to cheat the brain basically. So there's all sorts of nice trick you can do and how you map it into like the different RGB channel, you know, like if you comp it yes. so that you can like at least get more texture in all each of the channel, like a little bit like when you get VFX mats, you know, and you would just kind of layer it in each channel. So there's different tricks, but I, I, it makes me laugh because all the latest print, all the last things we were, we would go to, to the theater and it would be like so clean. Yeah. <laughs> and now we want the filth back. You know, so like really like, and then, you know, yeah. And then it's like, if you want to, you know, uh, 
like a really old print kind of look and then you have to go crazy and most people are not really willing to go there unless they right. shoot it this way. Like I, I did like a cute little the Silver Lake Cleaners, which is a student, was it student? No, it was Woman in Film. Woman in Film, sponsored by Google, mm-hmm. short film. And, you know, shot on film and has all the grit and the texture. And then you can really tell, like, there's nothing beats it. Like, if you go get an old stock and you get the grain from that, I mean, there is no digital cheat you can do that's going to successfully you give you that that real thing. Yeah, that so. makes perfect sense. And, I mean, I feel like this conversation about emulation and really everything that you've shared with us today, the one thing that I always find in common, no matter who it is, whenever I talk to a really, really good colorist is your attention to detail is just crazy. And it's been so cool just listening to you talk about the details that matter to you and the lengths you're willing to go to <laughs> to get them right. Like we're having such a, a fun and informal conversation today, but I can tell when it's go time for you, you are all in on those details and you won't compromise. On no, them. yeah, definitely. I mean, but I really care. I'm very passionate. That's yeah. why, you know, so I was telling you, like, I don't want to get jaded or I don't want to lose that passion. So, like, I'll have to get out before that happens, you know? Yeah. It takes a long time. I mean, you would know that, too. I'm guessing it takes a long time. I got here in 2006 and to build my name, to even feel like I still don't feel like like I'm top, top. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's so much big names out there. But, like, I mean, I did make my mark and I, I yeah. up there, you know, <laughs> like, but it's just it takes a while. And I don't know if you, with anything, right, arts in general, because you're an artist as well and you mm-hmm. do like all sorts of, you color, do you color on base light now or? No, I'm on a resolve okay, now. Okay, okay. But, you know, like doing coloring and directing and, you know, being in yeah. the art form. But there's always this sort of, you're as good as your last show or as good as your last work. And I can never take it for granted. So it's like, it's so competitive. It's difficult to just stay on top and get the project and you're like, oh my, but I just did this and it was fantastic. Why? Where's my next one? And then when you're busy, you're like, oh my God, when am I going to be with my family? You know? So yep. you, the balance is a little tricky, but I just feel like you have to know, I want to do this for as long as I can, but not to the cost of like, I think there is a time where you need to be aware if, you know, you cannot fulfill the same way, right? If the passion is not there, if you're jaded or if you depend too much on others and take the credit or like, you know, I don't want to be that person. Or if like, you know, your sight or things that, you know, I test my, my eye color, the grading thing, like every year to make sure like, you know, it's good because although color is very subjective, I still need to be able to treat it objectively, knowing that subjectively you might have to do things sometimes in order to flow and to make things work because of the way we're shot. But, you know, objectively, you need to know that you can still see your, all your different shades of color. So, yeah, I mean, I still have the passion and the love. So that's why the details and all that, I'm super hard on myself. So it's okay if you criticize any of my work because I'm the worst critic You've of my work. You've already done it. And so are any creative person, really, unless you have like this, I don't know, other type of personality yeah. that, that, that might not be like that. But I feel like I can always push further and all that. And once that's stopped, then... Then I will go do other things, right? Yeah. You know, so I don't know when that will be. But. Well, you've had an amazing run through like such a crazy number of periods and moments in our history. And, and you clearly are as passionate and as dug into what you're doing and, and, and loving it as ever. So I'm just glad we get to steal you for a couple hours and 
download some of your brain. Thanks oh, for giving thank us your time. You. Thank you. Yeah. Watch the Continental. I'm just kidding. <laughs> 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 oh, no, I'm just kidding. Thank you very yes. much, Maxine. Thank you. Thank you we'll for your soon. time. Yeah. <laughs>